Well, we're continuing our journey through the seven churches of Asia, and tonight we're going to take a look at the church at Pergamum. Some translations call it Pergamos. Uh, most, though, use the phrase Pergamum, or the word Pergamum. And uh, it is my intent to actually get through the, this entire church tonight. And you, if you all know me, that's an ambitious goal. <laughs> that's an ambitious goal. But turn your Bibles with me, please, to Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> and we're going to read verses 12 through 17. This is about the church at Pergamum, which was titled, unfortunately, the compromising church. Say this with me. Say, may we never, may we never. ever, ever. Be, be a compromising church. Compromising. No way. I don't want that uh, label at all. I don't want the Lord Jesus saying that about Res Live. So starting with verse 12. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Everybody say, uh-oh. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching uh, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent or else. As again, that's the one word I don't want to have to put God in a position of ever saying to me, hey, Rick, you better fix this or else. Uh, therefore, repent or else. I'm coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Hmm, intriguing, interesting. Well, as I normally do when we get to uh, one of the new churches of Asia, this time Pergamum, I give you a snapshot of the city that they live in. And so I just want to give you a quick thumbprint of that area. Absolutely, every time I study this, the seven churches, and I do that study of the geography and the city and the culture of the time, it puts that church in so much more uh, perspective uh, for me, and especially even the words that are written down in the text. But Pergamum was the center of culture. Now, granted, our last church in Sardis was a cultural, or Smyrna, excuse me, was a cultural area, but this was the center of uh, culture. It was famous for its library that held, it's believed, over 200,000 parchment rolls. I can't even imagine how much space would take up to have a library that would hold 200,000 parchment rolls. In fact, the word Pergamum is where we get the word parchment from. They're the ones that created parchment paper there in Pergamum. It was, however, uh, a, a, a great, and I don't mean that word in good, I mean in mammoth, pagan religious center. And you might be saying, well, Pastor, you've kind of said something similar about the other two churches. It was a pagan society under Roman culture. But this was 
one of the deepest pagan religious centers that there was. Notice the scripture said where Satan lives, okay? Um, and, and, it, and, and, and Pergamum actually regarded itself as a city to be the custodians of Greek worship, the mythology and all of that stuff. So although Zeus, Asclepius, and other mythical gods were worshipped, the one worship that was even the most satanic that would cause the people to relate more to what Jesus said was Caesar worship. This was like the hub of Caesar worship. You remember Caesar uh, considered himself to be God and a deity, and people worshipped him as a god. Uh, and yet there were certain, uh, certain Caesars, all of the kings of Rome, emperors of Rome were called Caesar, and they had different names, but many of them were absolutely anti-Christian all the way and did everything they could to eliminate the Christians. So we see in verse uh, um, 12, uh, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that's a pretty cool phrase. Now remember every introduction that Jesus used in each one of the letters to the churches had something to do with how the people would relate to the culture that they were in. Right? Now, when we hear, he who has a sharp two-edged sword, we immediately think of the Word of God as Christians and the, the two-edged sword. But this really meant something to them as well. So Christ didn't identify himself along this line just for any reason. It was a specific thing related to the things that the people in that city had to face while trying to be Christians in such a, an ungodly pagan society. Roman governors were divided into two different classes. You had governors that had what was called the right of the sword, and you had others that did not have that specific uh, title on themselves to have the right of the sword. The right of the sword meant that these governors had the power to, of life and death at, the very, at a very word in any given moment, anywhere, at the word of that governor, they could kill. they pull the sword and kill anyone at any time without any explanations whatsoever. That's what the right of the sword has to mean. So automatically, I hope if you're following along with how I'm journeying through this, you can see why Jesus says, uh, you know what? The governors and Caesar may seem to have a sword, but I want you to know that I am the one who has the two-edged sword. Okay, the, and not only just two-edged, but it, it always comes with the, the adjective sharp, the sharp two-edged sword. So the Roman proconsul, whose headquarters was in, in Pergamum, he just so happened to have the right of the sword. And as, at any given moment, at, at the whim of his own pleasure, he could take that rule and use it against any Christian anywhere, anytime. And I think that, I, I love the fact that not only do we hear Jesus giving titles of who he actually is, but he gives titles of his identity that relate to the people that are under a certain pressure, under a certain persecution. So here they were in the most pagan city, most ungodly city, specifically that was absolutely ruled by Caesar worship, and this particular proconsul or governor had the right of the sword, and they feared the sword all the time. I hope you see it, that this was a reassurance by Jesus Christ, saying, hey, Caesar may have a sword, but y'all ain't seen nothing yet, right on? Because he's saying that he's a sword. So the text we most commonly associate with the two-edged sword, of course, is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, 
And again, I don't think we're going to have those up here, so you guys can, some of this you can just take notes, others I'll have you turn to certain scriptures, okay? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Woo! So we all know in our Christianity that the, the sword refers to the Word of God. We often talk about take your, have your sword with you. So Jesus identifies himself as the sharp two-edged sword. Now we know from Revelation chapter 1 verse 16 where it says, out of his mouth shall come or shall proceed a sharp two-edged sword. So out of his mouth refers to the spoken word. Okay, so we need to get that in mind as well. Now, there's power right here, okay? But you enact this power and engage this power when you speak the Word of God. That's why I say to people, don't, you know, have it as written, have scriptures that you know in your heart, but don't try to have a mental warfare with the enemy because he can't read your mind. You want to invoke or engage the power, hit the switch, the trigger on the power of God, speak the Word and it becomes like a sharp two-edged sword in your mouth. Praise God. So Jesus reminds his church that he will deal with this thing. It said that he would take care of it. I think it's in verse 12 where it says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. Now, let me share a couple of commentaries, uh, little excerpts from a couple of commentaries. One of them is the commentary from John Gill, and it says, the only weapon, now well, let me pause. Remember that the things about these letters were for churches that existed, the church age as it would proceed through history, and also for the end times church. And we are, by the way, the end times church. So it says the only weapon this church that would include us right now, y'all. And the true ministers and members of it had to defend themselves against the growing corruptions of Antichrist, who in this interval rose up by degrees and was revealed and came to the height of his power, was the word of God. The only weapon, no matter how qualified they were to sit in the seat of pastor or bishop or whatever they were doing, the only true weapon that you have and that I have is the word of God of God. Amen? Amen. So I don't, I don't hammer you keeping your nose in the book because it's a clever statement. I hammer it because I do realize that it's the only weapon you have against Satan. But not the, not the mental ascent, the spoken word. It said out of his mouth came the sharp two-edged sword. And then a commentary paragraph from Adam Clark. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, cuts every way. Sharp, two-edged sword. It convinces of sin, convinces of righteousness, convinces of judgment, pierces between the joints and the marrow, divides between the soul and the spirit. I like this. Dissects the whole mind and exhibits a regular anatomy of the soul. Woo! Hey, you may think you're hiding something from God. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Nothing, even the very intents of your heart. So the next point that I have uh, as I marked things down was in verse 13 where it says, 
I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. Now, some theologians believe that possibly Antipas may have been the pastor at Pergamum, but there's no real historical record about who Antipas was. But we do know that Christ considered him, he called him my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. He was clearly a martyr that got noted by Christ in Scripture, so he must have held some high degree of notability at least. Uh, so it says, my witness, my faithful one who is killed among you where Satan dwells. So let's take a look at this, uh, this idea of where the, Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Again, it's very much related on the city and the culture and the time of the city. As far as the world is concerned, at that time, Pergamum is the place where Satan's rule was the strongest because, as I said, it was the center of Caesar worship. Now, there's a reason why the believers would consider worship to Caesar uh, of such extreme blasphemy that they would call it satanic in every form that it presented itself. Uh, and that's probably why Pergamum is called Satan's throne. We know that you know, Satan doesn't live there. It said dwells there, abides there, but that's in the hearts of people and in the practices of people. Are you with me? So uh, it was the place where people were required on the threat of death, hear me now, on the threat of death to take the name of their Lord and give that name to Caesar instead of Christ. Now, as a Christian, would you not consider that blasphemous and satanic to take the name of our Lord and say, well, I'm going I'm to attribute that name, the power and every attribute that comes with it, to Caesar. No, these Christians could not consider anything more satanic than to do that. It's pretty commendable. Christ commended this church that even in the face of the, the right of the sword and Caesar worship and all that they were demanded to do, that, that they, they faced it all the way to death. They held fast. Christ says, I'm so proud of you. Even in the face of death, your leader was killed. He was a faithful one of mine, and, and he was murdered, and yet you hold fast my name. And yet you will not deny the faith. I mean, we're talking about them being in a city where you don't give Caesar the glory think, Caesar thinks he's due, and especially in, under a governor with the right of the sword, you're dead. That's, that's a pretty threatening environment. You all understand. So it's pretty cool that Christ gave them such a commendation. He says, you hold fast the name of Christ and never, ever deny the faith. That's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. Basically, it, it, in that setting in Pergamum, under Caesar deity rule, under the right of the sword governor, uh, to proclaim or adhere to the name of Jesus... Or, or the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, would have caused the most um, severe and bitter opposition and persecution that any Christian could have in that setting. Some of these uh, proconsuls and governors of certain areas were absolutely uh, horribly deviant in the things that they did. They were cruel and sadistic in their torture of Christians. This, was a, this, was, this wasn't even a good place to visit, <laughs> okay? So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. 
for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. How many know there's power in the name of the Lord? We're to, amen. We're to confess the name of the Lord. We are not to deny the name of the Lord whatsoever. So in a city that Caesar was, he expected to be the supreme deity. And his name was to be hallowed in that environment. Now remember, the populace of this city loved worshiping Caesar. That was their deal. They weren't doing it under any subjection. But to be there and to not, it, you know, it brought Christians, the Christians at Pergamum, probably some of the most severe persecution of any area, even to death, to proclaim Jesus to be king of kings and not Caesar, to proclaim Jesus to be Lord of lords and not Caesar, death. And if you refuse to deny Christ, you can, be, you can expect execution in that environment. So we think we have it hard here, but imagine living in a city, in an environment. We think sometimes we're wondering, what are we doing? What's Governor Whitmer doing? Or, or what else? Or, or heavens to forbid, who's in the, in the White House now? Or whatever that case. Listen, <laughs> we still got some freedoms. Praise God. We need to rejoice in that in Jesus' name. But Jesus uh, gave us clear instructions in the premier end times passage in Matthew 24, where he gave us clear instructions, this, in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Uh, there's no metaphor there. There's no you know, special hidden message other than dead. I know, good news, right? It says you'll be hated by all nations. In many respects, Christianity across the globe is hated by every other nation. And many are being killed in other nations. And we can expect, Jesus said this, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure to the end, there it is again, we shall also reign with him. But, ruh-roh, if we deny him, he will deny us. Ah, that messes with a lot of people's eternal security ideas. Okay? Second Timothy, by the way, was not written to the world. It was written to the church that Timothy was pastor. It was written to Timothy, who was pastor of a church there. Okay? So now we're going to get interesting with it, because uh, my fourth point out of five is the teaching, it says here in verse 14 through 15. Let's look at it. Revelation 2, 14 through 15. But I have a few things against you. He didn't say I have something. I have a few things against you. And they're pretty big. Because you have some there, that means in the church, right in your midst, who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of impurity. Verse 15, so you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've already talked about the Nicolaitans one time before. Remember that these were a group of people within the church who sought to persuade Christians that there was nothing wrong with conformity to sin, that there was nothing wrong with conformity to world ways, and they were even more insidious than that. They were such an insidious group because they believed that it did not matter what you did in the flesh 
because what you did in the flesh would have no effect on the spirit. They were so completely separate from each other. And this was the heresy that they were teaching. You can do anything in the flesh because it has no effect on the spirit. But we know differently, right, that sin has an utter, uh, um, not just damaging, but is a killer effect on the spirit of people. In fact, uh, I think in essence they were saying, live it up. Go on, be immoral. Do what you need to do because you know what? Sin doesn't really matter. Sound familiar? A little compromise here and there's not going to hurt anything. Just do it in the name of Jesus. Huh? That would, I, in a nutshell, I just told you the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We're going to do all this stuff that brings us fleshly pleasure. It doesn't really matter because it's not going to affect you spiritually anyway. Man, it doesn't get any more insidious than that. The teaching of Balaam, interestingly, is very similar to the teaching of the Nicolaitans in that it was also a compromise of immorality and idol worship. If you want to do some study, uh, I decided not to add it to tonight's study, but in Numbers chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 31, you can read the story about Balaam and Balak. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 15 says, They have forsaken the right way, and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Loved the sin. That was, that was that group. They were involved in idol worship. That's part of the Balaam teaching. Idol worship and sexual immorality. That's two fundamental things. And they, and, and they didn't care. They didn't care. So let me help you with something. And you all know this. Uh, you wouldn't be at midweek service if you didn't already know this. You can't have it both ways. You can't have the best of the world and the best of God all in the same cup. It does not mix. We have to, at some point in our Christian life, make a decision. You have to make a decision that you are going to no longer tolerate sin in your life. You're no longer going to compromise with sin, and especially sexual sin. You'll see that all through the scripture about the damage that sexual sin will cause. You need to know that it didn't work then. Jesus was against it. He says, I have this against you. And he's going to come, he's going to lower the boom on them with the sword of the spirit. Okay, the sword of the, uh, of the word of God. Uh, so his, what was his opinion on the matter? Well, Revelation 2.16, his opinion was this. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's going to take on battle and make war with those who uh, adhere in some way, shape, or manner to the teachings of Balaam or the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans believed that it didn't matter what you did. We're going to serve God with all our heart, but it really makes no never mind what you do in the flesh. And, and, and Balaam was all about idol worship and sexual immorality, and somehow we'll mix it in with some God stuff or some Jesus stuff. He's saying, no, you're going to repent or else, and if you don't repent, I'm going to, he didn't say I'm just going to come to you. I'm going to come to you quickly. You know what that reminds me of? That, that, the imagery reminds me of a parent who's about to grab a hold of one of their kids and give them a whooping, and they, they got just a little bit of an edge of anger on them, and they're moving in quick to take care of business. Right on? That's an or else situation right there. Uh, so Jesus is saying, no, we're not going to do it. 
It's, it's not going to happen. Repent or I'll come to you. Jesus warns them, meaning that he's warned the church throughout ages, and he's warning us today as the end times church that loose living Christians, he's going to come and fight against them with the spiritual sword, which with the word of God. And remember, the word of God is a sharp, two-edged sword. It cuts going in, it cuts coming out. All right, it divides uh, flesh and blood, bone from marrow, thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, I don't ever put message, messages together, you know, kind of sitting in my office. I do have a big sword in there. And I don't sit in my office and sharpen the edge of my sword while I'm writing a message going, oh, this is going to hurt good. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is going to hurt good. No. But you know what? Anytime a good word comes to you, it ought to cut you to some degree. It ought to be doing some reparation and, and uh, preparation in your life to such a degree that it makes you, oh, man, that, was, that, that didn't feel so good, but I get it. This is what the Lord wants from me. Even the doc I've never been to a doctor yet that didn't cause me more pain while I was there than I had before I went in. Come on, can I get a witness? All right. Uh, even the shepherd who had a sheep, who had a broken leg, they just had, they had to reset that leg in order for that sheep to survive. And the pain, can you, I, I've never had that. I, my goodness. So Jesus is not, uh, uh, doesn't have a problem resetting. He says, I'm going to come fight you. And so you shouldn't look at a preacher. Now, if you have a preacher that's just got a chip on his shoulder, and I don't, I don't believe, and uses the pulpit as a bully platform, and I don't, I don't believe, who brings the truth, however, you should expect that it's going to cut you, it's going to wound you a little bit, but if it's done correctly under the anointing of God, you'll, always be, uh, you'll never be left on the surgeon's table with your guts pouring out. You'll be sewn up, bandaged, bandaged up, and healed and sent forward to do even better in the name of Jesus. Amen. So quit looking at preachers. Now, I don't have this here. I have people that call me and say, you know, that was really hard, but it was the truth. Keep preaching the truth. Don't preach nothing but the truth. We can take it, Pastor. Come on, bring it on, bring it on. I think we do have some radical people in here going, get it, get harder, get more. Come on, get sharpen that blade, sharpen that blade. But it's, I'm not talking about the preacher. I'm talking about the word. The preacher is just simply a messenger of the word. And so if it's delivered on the anointing of God, it should have some effect on your life. Um, he said, I'm going to come quickly, and I'm going to fight you with the word, the spoken word. And if you don't change your behavior right now, I'm coming. Now, I don't know about you, but I just soon not have the Lord fighting against me. That's just not real smart. I think I'll live a life, and I know the Lord's going to be fighting against me, but whatever. Hello, Nicolaitan. Eh, it's okay if I'm not married and I'm still sleeping around. And you know what? I really enjoy golf way more than I do church. Hello, Balaam. That probably cut a little bit. But. <laughs> All right, now it's going to get good. Hallelujah. Going to get good. So we got verse 17. All of a sudden we get the blessings. Here, here come the blessings. Awesome. We got the or else. We got the commendation. You have not denied the faith and you have stuck by my name. And, uh, but you've got this, these issues here with these two 
um, teachings, these two groups of people, fix it or else, but then we got this great final verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give of the hidden, some of the hidden manna. And we're going to talk about that for a minute. There's an interesting Jewish folklore that when uh, the Israelites were put into Babylonian exile, Jeremiah took some of the manna, because if you'll remember, they had to collect a certain amount of manna, and they kept it near the, uh, the Ark of the Testimony in the, te- the Holy of Holies. So it was always a reminder of their journey in the wilderness. And so there's some Jewish folklore that says that Jeremiah went in and grabbed that and hid it in the cleft of the rock so that it would always be preserved. Now, we don't know if that's what hidden manna means there. Again, it's just a Jewish folklore. I thought it was interesting. We can find a lot of other meanings, however, behind the phrase hidden manna. goes on to say, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Oh, man, I kind of like that. Why? Because I have been uh, um, endorsing the fact that every single one of us have an individual, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My relationship with my Father is between Him and me. It is not between you and Him and you and me. Yours is between you and Him. It's very personal, and I love that idea that at some point, should I overcome, and I will, I'm going to get some of the hidden manna, We're going to talk about that in more detail in just a moment. But he's going to give me a white stone. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And on that stone is going to be written a brand new name for me, of only only of which I will understand. Because it has to do with my relationship with Christ. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. I like it a lot. Amen? So, Hidden Man, of course, takes us back to another Old Testament story in Exodus. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, and let's quickly take a look at it. All the way back to the big inning. Uh, We're going to look at verses 11 through 15, and then verses 34 and 35. I'm reading from the new... What? Oh, Exodus. Don't you have your discerner on? Can't you figure out which chapter I'm going? No. Uh, 16. I left out an important part. Now just go to any book in Exodus and go to verses 11, 15. It'll be all right. <laughs> Chapter 16, verses 11 through 15, and verses 34 through 35. Uh, are you ready? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the son of, sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it is. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now quickly jump over to verse 34 and 35. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. They were to put away an omer, take a jar and put an omer of the manna in it. 
And so the sons of Israel, verse 35, ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land, and they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So that jar of manna was kept in the Holy of Holies next to the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And so it, I like the folklore idea that, because there's some, you read about Jeremiah and the role that he had to play in the exile, the Babylonian exile of the, the children of Israel. You see that he had a very important role as the prophet of the time. It could very well be that he took it and hid it. Yeah, maybe that's the hidden meaning. Uh, I don't know about that. It's interesting to me that the manna in the Bible is also called the grain of heaven. Or the King James Version calls it the corn of heaven. I know, I was shocked by that. It's in Psalm 78, verse 24. Uh, he rained down manna for the people to eat, and he gave them the grain of heaven. And I think it's interesting that the King James Version would use the phrase corn of heaven. Uh, verse 25 in that same chapter calls it the bread of angels. Psalm 78, 25. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. So we know that that physically happened uh, in the wilderness with the children of Israel every day for 40 years, okay? We also know the story goes on to say they were, got so sick and tired of that that they said, we need meat, we need meat, we need meat. So God sent more quails, and he said, I'm going to give you so many quails till they come out your nose. And they got sick of that. They were just a grumbling group. Oh, what a church Pastor Moses had to deal with. However, now let's go to John. Because I think that there, as though there's hidden manna, there's also deeper meaning than a jar of manna. Okay? Obviously, that was very important that that jar of manna, that remembrance was done because Jesus gave a command, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and keep it next to the Ark of the Testimony. That was an important deal for God. Okay? So we don't just disregard it. But uh, I, would, I would suggest to you that Jesus became that manna. Okay, so we're going to look at that in John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 31 through 35. For those of you who are wondering, that's the sixth chapter of John. <laughs> Here we go. Woo! Our fathers, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then he said to them, Lord, excuse me, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never, ever thirst. If the hidden manna and the bread of life are the same thing, it stands for nothing less than Christ himself. And I will go down that route. I mean, I love the story of the jar hidden in the cleft by Jeremiah. This is a great idea. But the, truth, the trueness behind it is that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven. And this is promised to the one who overcomes. He will give of himself the true spiritual food. And we get, we get some of that even right now in our Christianity, but imagine when we get to heaven, we will have Christ in his fullness. 
And it will be an amazing, amazing thing. goes on to say in Revelation, as we kind of get ready to bring it to an end here in a minute, believe it or not, I'm actually going to get one church done on one night, and I don't think I'm speed speaking, am I? Am I a little bit? Uh, it must be the fast or whatever. So, Diane's going, yeah, you're speaking a little bit fast. Should I slow down? <laughs> I've had a great day. It's been a beautiful day, and I'm excited about the things of the Lord, excited for the church, and just could not wait for that countdown to get done so we could get started tonight. All right, back on track. Not only will I give some of the hidden manna, the Lord says to the person who overcomes, but I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Uh, again, I love that because it's just so personal between Christ and you. All right, now the, the stone with a new name, the final promise of Christ to the faithful at Pergamum is that it will give him a white stone with a new name on it. Uh, this passage has been open to multiple possible theological interpretations over the years, okay? It can mean a number of different things. There's nothing scriptural that tells us exactly what that is. So I'm going to read from my favorite little book on Revelation. It's a two-volume book, and I'm just going to read one page. It's very short about some of the ideas of what that white stone can mean, and then we'll talk about the new name. This is very cool because it could mean almost any one of these things, and any one of them is fine. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, in the ancient world, colored stones were used as counters for working out calculations. This would mean that the Christian is counted among the number of the faithful. I'll take that stone. Anybody else? In the ancient law courts, white and black stones were used for registering the verdicts of juries. Black for condemnation, white for acquittal. I'll take that white stone. This would mean that the Christian is acquitted in the sight of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Both those pretty good so far, right? Here's another one. In the ancient world, objects called tessere were much used. A tessere was a little tablet made of wood or metal or stone it had writing on it, and generally speaking, the possession of the tessera conferred some kind of privilege upon a man. Three of these tessera added something to the picture. So there's a certain, I'm not sure how that one fits to the Christianity, but it was an ancient historical thing. Uh, onwards, in Rome, the great houses had their clients, dependents, who every morning received from their patron food and money for the day. Ooh, I'll take that one. They were often given a tessera by which they identified themselves as having the right to free gifts. Free gifts of the Holy Spirit. Come on, are you seeing the spiritual picture? This would mean that the Christian has the right to the free gifts for life which Christ can give. I'll take that stone too. To win a victory at the games was one of the greatest honors the ancient world could give. Outstanding victors were given by the masters of the game, a tessera, which was, again, a white stone, which in the days to come conferred upon them the right of free entry to all public spectacles. This would mean that the Christian is the victorious athlete of Christ who is a sharer in the glory of his Lord. Here's another one. And this is the last one. In Rome, a great gladiator was, it, was the admired hero of all. Often a gladiator had to fight on until he was killed in combat. 
But if he had a specially illustrious career, when he grew old, he was allowed to retire in honor. And such men were given a white stone with the letters SP on it. SP stands for the Latin word spectatus, which means a man whose valor has been proved beyond doubt. This would mean that the Christian is the gladiator of Christ and that when he has proved his valor in the battle of life, he's allowed to enter into the rest which Christ gives with honor. So all those were pretty cool white stones, right? So we don't know exactly what the white stone means, but I think it's interesting that it talks then about a new name written down in glory. I hope you have that. Are you in there? You in the booth? We all set to go when, I'm, when I say go? All right, so I got to this spot, and um, I already recognize that it's, it's a name only I, when I receive my white stone with a name on it, it's going to be a name that apparently only I will understand. Obviously, Christ will understand it because he gave it to me. It's obviously very personal. And I was kind of thinking about the ending of this, this teaching tonight. And I thought about a new name written down in glory. It brought me back to an old uh, Pentecostal hymn. I got a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Remember that one? And so I thought, wow, I think I'm going to get my guitar out, and I'm going to sing this song tonight to kind of close it. I couldn't remember how the verses went, though. I can only remember how the course went. So I took my search a little bit deeper, and I hit one of the YouTubes on new name and glory. I hit it to see if I could remember what the melody line was for the verse. And then this video popped up, and I had a shouting time in my office. I had a Holy Ghost spell in my office, and I thought, boy, there is no better way than to end this service tonight by us watching this video together. You're going you're gonna to be blessed by it. The lyrics will be on it as well. Are you ready? Do it.
<laughs> Woo! Give the Lord a shout in the house. I have it on pretty good authority that Jonathan realizes that's my new favorite song. <laughs> oh, praise God. I can't, wa I can't wait to see a Sunday morning service come completely unglued when we do that song here at church. Amen. Especially for those of you who've been able to go through these teachings. To recognize that even though there are times difficult news, difficult things, that for those who overcome and those who endure to the end, there's nothing but good, good stuff planned by our Father in heaven. Amen. Listen, I love you. I call you blessed. I pray that you have an amazing week. May the peace of the Lord be with you. Go in peace. I call you blessed. Have a good evening.